Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can you hear me on the phone? I I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock-in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. I'm talking today to Helen Pluckrose, author of a number of published academic works, arguing that, among other things, dog parks have a problematic rape culture and that men can mitigate their transphobia by anally penetrating themselves with dildos. If that makes her sound like a lunatic caricature, a right-on wokeness, it's supposed to. She wrote those so-called papers as part of an elaborate hoax to expose shoddy scholarship in academical fields focused on gender, race, and other hot-button issues. Now she's co-authored the book, Cynical Theories, which is essentially a history of the ideas of critical theory, or what most people will know as wokeness. Spoiler alert, she is not a fan. When did you become such an unreconstructed bigot, Helen? Oh, probably from birth, I, I expect. But um, I became aware of it when I, I went back to, to university at 34 and started studying English literature and came across all of this uh, postmodern theory and the derivations of it, post-colonial theory and queer theory and, and all the rest of it, and, and trying to do scholarship through those lenses was, um, yeah, that, that was what made me not a fan. Have you had a lot of hate mail since this book came out? Uh, yes, I also have several committed stalkers um, um, few physical threats, um, but but a lot of um, nastiness, and I've had to block people on several sites. And um, yeah, it's it's what you expect, really, when you address sensitive issues. I mentioned your hoax or hoaxes in the intro. It's become known as the grievance studies affair. You and your co-conspirators wrote twenty academic papers. That is quite a lot of trouble to go to. Was it really worth it? 
I think it was. We wanted to get right into the system. I mean, we, we call it a hoax and, and there are certainly hoaxish elements to it, but mostly we wanted to get into the system. We wanted to see how it would work, see what we could get them to accept or not, see how the reviewers would direct us. Now, this gives me grounds because people are constantly telling me I, I don't agree with these theories because I don't understand them. I need to read more. So I thought if I can get published um, critical race and feminist philosophy in Hypatia, the home of uh, of those kind of theorists, people will have to accept I know what I'm talking about and will understand it. We can be sure we don't we know what we're talking about and we're not, you know, just picking off a few stray lunatics that are sort of sneaking in by mistake. Well, let's talk about your book. Um, it's quite grown up. Personally, I find much of this stuff unintelligible. Maybe you could describe what it is and why you've written about it in accessible terms. Okay, so um, it's, it's rooted in postmodern theory mostly in terms of knowledge, power and language. So these are ideas that, that came um, primarily from Foucault. He's definitely the strongest voice in all of this. And it's the idea that Ooh. knowledge... Uh, Michel Foucault, the, the French philosopher... Oh, that Frenchman, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he um, said that power and knowledge were so intertwined that they should be called the same thing, and he called it power knowledge. Everything that we think of is true has actually been constructed by powerful forces in society. Then once they've legitimated knowledge, and we're going for Jean-Francois Lyotard now with... Um, the legitimation of knowledge part, um, then the, this is spread through society. So our society, for example, regards science very highly as a producer of knowledge. Therefore, if we are told that it is scientifically proven that something is true, as far as science ever claims to have proved anything, then we, we accept that this is true. Now, this, according to the postmodernists, is a cultural construct, that we are in favour of science and reason because uh, this is how the West has developed. Then the later theorists took this on to say, this is how the West has been developed by straight, white, Western men. And so they've broken into a lot of identity and cultural theories to look at different ways of knowing and structures of power that apparently most of us can't see. The systems of power like white supremacy, patriarchy, um, cis-normativity, the assumption that everybody identifies as the sex that their genitals indicate, um, ableism, fat phobia. We can't see them, we normal people. We need these critical theorists to point them out to us and help us dismantle it all. You must have read or tried to read a phenomenal amount of this stuff in critical theory. Were you ever concerned it might persuade you? I, I, I actually have do have to kind of wash my brain in between. Um, I read, uh, for one of the papers, I, I read six um, of the most sort of popular um, critical race books in, in two days. And I then tried to relax by watching a police, um, you know, a sort of one hour police drama 
thing and a, a mixed race student was graduating and she was hugging her parents and I thought she still loves her mother even though her mother's white and the, this oppressive force of whiteness must have, have affected her entire childhood and this stuff it gets into your brain and it really worries me I'm I'm probably more inoculated against it than the vast majority of people in it, but it really worries me about how young people, particularly young mixed-race people, um, who are, are learning this sort of less critically, with, with less sort of understanding of the problems with it, how much it can affect them. I think there's a generational element in all of this. I mean, I never had to study any of this bollocks at university. And uh, I'm sorry for the, for the sexist terminology. But my producer, who is 38, did have to study critical theory. And I'm interested as to where it came from. Okay, so in the um, 60s and 70s, you would probably not have come across it unless you had been in France and in a particular um, theory, in particular sort of disciplines. So we have Michel Foucault, who's essentially a historian, and then Jacques Derrida, who is a linguist, and uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, who's a philosopher. So these ideas all sort of appeared um, in uh, the middle of the 60s, right through to the middle of the 80s, prolific amounts of writing, this scepticism towards meta-narratives, big stories that we think are of as true. So Christianity could be a meta-narrative. Um, Marxism is a meta-narrative. The original postmodernists were critical of Marxism for being an overly simplistic, totalizing explanation, but also science and progress. So if you'd have been in France and studying these kind of things then, you would have known about this. But most people didn't because it's really largely incomprehensible. If it had stayed in that form, honestly, I it couldn't. I I think of it as a, as a virus, because it just deconstructed everything. It deconstructed itself by the middle of the eighties, and it could have died out. But the next wave of theorists, they are the ones who made it um, accessible and applicable, and they did that mostly by taking it to America. The French are generally very keen to distance themselves from responsibility for Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, <laughs> and Jean-Francois Lyotard. Postmodernism did not really continue into social justice in France in the same way as it has in America and here and um, Canada, Australia, the Anglosphere, although it is um, seeping into all over Europe. I'm, I'm hearing particularly from um, the Dutch and uh, Swedes about it at the moment. So it's, um, yeah, you would probably, in the 90s, you'd probably have heard a little, if you'd been at university then, um, some of the original postmodernists. You might have had some post-colonial theory. Now, I went back to university late, so really only just over a decade ago. And um, by this time, we have queer theory, uh, which is really developed. And this is a, the, a very typically postmodern idea where you have to break down all categories. All categories have been constructed in the service of oppressive power. So there is no such thing as a man and a woman, masculine and feminine, gay and straight. These are all constructs and we need to mix them all up. So queer becomes a verb. And to queer something is to take it out of its usual categories and, and mess around with it. 
So you get a lot of this queer theory now in feminism. You also get a lot of critical race theory in feminism uh, in the form of intersectionality. So critical race theory started off quite well. Its roots um, in, you know, its roots you can trace back to Sojourner Truth and, and Frederick Douglass and, you know, freed slaves uh, who argued for treating black people as human beings and um, for freedom of speech and things like this. And, but as we've gone into the critical turn in the 70s, 80s, 90s, then we've got this really pessimistic approach. So, I mean, critical in this sense... You know, it, it it sort of comes from the Marx, Marx Marxist sense, where where Marx said um, the thing to do is criticize all of the things that exist. So we've got this this critical turn at around this this time, and anybody at university are in this century is likely to have come across queer theory and critical race theory and intersectionality. Intersectionality is an unholy mixture of the kind of radical separatist politics that was happening um, from the new left, um, the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, with postmodern theory and an explicit rejection of, of liberalism and embrace of identity politics. It, it was going to, it was bound to go wrong. It was bound to be a problem. <laughs> But critical theory, as you describe it there, is a pretty niche occupation, isn't it? Aren't you getting your knickers in a twist over nothing? Uh, no. Uh, so critical theories, once they stayed in universities, that's, that's fine. And I mean, I think um, for some, just, just to forestall some of your um, better read um, listeners, I'm not talking about the Frankfurt School. When we're talking about critical theories, talking much more broadly than, than than critical theory as named by the Frankfurt School. Otherwise, you will get 100 people writing in and saying, no, they, she, she clearly doesn't know what the critical theory is and it's all about Habermas. No, it isn't. So anyway, um, <laughs> where, where were we? Uh, no, my, my knickers are untwisted. Uh, the problem that we've had, uh, when we published the book, we could see the problem seeping into so many different institutions um we finished writing it over a year ago and we but we didn't predict what it would happen what would have happened by now so after the death of george floyd and the black lives matter protests we have received so many um appeals for help from people whose employer university or children's school is seeking to train them in dismantling their whiteness. They want affirmations of adherence to very specific um, concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which aren't which aren't really how they're used in general terminology. They want people to affirm the existence of these invisible systems of power, particularly white supremacy, patriarchy and um, cis normativity and they want them to commit to dismantling them and we're trying to push back at this in the end i've had to set up a discord server to try to triage it so we can help the most urgent cases people in immediate danger of being fired for not believing or pretending to be say racist there's just so much of it. We're getting dozens of um, emails a day, people sending in new policies, new programmes. 
um, training programs and it's it's really is I I I am not a hyperbolic person I um, generally am accused by my American colleagues of um, the problem of British understatement but I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we are looking particularly in the US at a genuine attempted cultural revolution there is an attempt to take over with these ideas of power and privilege. And I, I don't think it can win in the long term, but I think it can do a lot of damage before it gets pushed back. So this is the point at which the BBC takes it as read that white privilege is a fact of life. Yeah, that, that, that can be a symptom of it when, you know, I, I, there, there are good scholars out there there is, who will look at this in a more nuanced way. In some areas of life, it probably is a privilege to be white. In more areas of life than it is to be a privilege, privilege to be black. For example, we only see people pretending to be black in very narrow spheres. So there's been a very few cases of people pretending to, uh, white people pretending to be um, black or have um, black ancestry in order to attain some kind of privilege. I don't think it's untrue to say that white, that white privilege quite possibly does still exist, but we need to measure this and we need to look at it empirically. We cannot th- theorise it into every situation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do you get from a bunch of second-rate French poseurs to wokeism infecting everything? That's um, I, that that development. I I think it went in three stages when the theorists in the late eighties and early nineties started writing, particularly about gender, race, sexuality, disability, and and weight. Um, then this became usable by activists. The language became clearer. There were more things to do with it. You could apply it to more things. So it became more 
um, popular and dominant in the humanities and various kinds of cultural studies. And then, of course, people leave universities, they go into all kinds of professions. But since 2010, it's really solidified and it's, it's become um, a, a meta-narrative of its own. I mean, the, the original postmodernists would be spinning in their graves at this point because we are told by people like uh, Robin DiAngelo, whose book has sold out numerous times, White Fragility. Um, she, she's the leading authority on this whiteness, white privilege, white fragility um, nonsense, um, harmful... Um, it, her language is so clear. She is so certain. She is telling us it is a fact that we all think like this. If you are a white person who was born in a predominantly white culture, you will think exactly the way she thinks about black people. And you'll either admit it and work to dismantle it or you'll deny it and you'll be fragile and you'll perpetuate the problem. Um, <laughs> we had a few questions on University Challenge the other day on a feminist post colonialist decon deconstructionist called Spivak. It's yeah. complicated stuff. Can you describe some of the other things that are happening today and tracing their intellectual origins? Yeah, so, so let, let's have a go at, at Spivak then. So she. Um, she traces herself back very clearly to Derrida. So she is was radically un, radically sceptical of the power of language. So that's partly why she's so difficult to read. Um, but it also means that she thinks that, that people who have been subordinated, the, the subaltern, the, um, the underclass, the, the colonised peoples, are unable to speak for themselves because they get the language of the oppressor imposed upon them. Now, that idea is what we see in the decolonise effort a lot more today. So when we want to see, we see people wanting to tear down statues, rename buildings, um, decolonise the curriculum, and going to ludicrous extents like saying that maths and literacy and politeness and being on time are, are white um, characteristics. It's um, it, it's a significant problem. I myself was in, managed to get myself invited to a symposium uh, called Decolonized STEM, in which I intended to use a very good scholar, Miranda, to argue that claiming that STEM belongs to straight white men, well, white men, is actually sexist and racist. And I, but I wrote my pitch in the language and they clearly didn't understand it and invited me. Then somebody Googled me and I was informed that I can't go and argue that, um, that claiming science to be a white male thing is racist and sexist because it endangers the safety of the other attendees. This is the, the, the belief in the power of language to be really destructive is, is overwhelming. We've got far too many universities, haven't we, if people are wasting their time with this sort of thing? The thing is, I'm a, I'm a defender of the humanities, and this, this is my overwhelming drive here, is I want to be able to do scholarship properly. I want to look at how late medieval women lived. That's what I want to do, and I don't want to have to do it through feminist, queer, or post-colonial theory. I want to 
you know, be able to, to study things rigorously again. And there's, there's a lot of value. There's even value in teaching about culture and gender and identity. I'm, my next book is, I am planning, is going to be on how we could do gender studies properly to be actually genuinely useful to society rather than a sort of paranoid conspiracy theory. Before we get on to gender studies, um, are you saying systemic racism is a myth or what? I, I, think, I think there is probably institutional racism in various places and time. I am convinced, I find scholars like Michelle Alexander, and here we're looking at the US, of course, and she looks, she gives an empirical look with a lot of data at police interactions with black communities. And I think there's a, it, she's, she's made her case that there is a problem there. So I think systemic racism probably does exist. I don't believe it exists in the way the current theorists do, because they see it as working through language and through people and biases and attitudes, they see systemic racism and the system as all interactions. I don't believe that. I believe that individuals can choose to reject racist ideas. I believe that they can grow up not having been socialised into racist ideas in the first place. I don't believe the world is as simplistic as people like Robin DiAngelo insist it is. It strikes me that, that this can also be seen as a history of the post-war left. Is that fair? I mean, previously, the sort of area you're talking about was infatuated with Marxism as its grand overarching narrative. But it seems yeah. to have replaced that with critical theory. And in so doing, they've abandoned class consciousness and replaced it with privilege consciousness which is likely to push working class people towards the right, isn't it, if anything? Yeah, I, I have argued this a lot, and so have a lot of other people, including Marxists. Of course, the, the traditional Marxists have been the longest-standing critics of the postmodernists. If you think um, uh, Chomsky uh, arguing with Foucault, Habermas um, arguing against post saying that postmodernism has a self-referentiality problem if nothing is true how can it be true that that nothing is true you know so yeah it's got this long history of um of of, of wars on on the left and i think that we could see the emergence of postmodernism as a kind of radical disillusionment with Marxism because that was the main framework on the left and then it, catastrophic manifestations of it occurred. I think among leftist intellectuals there was a sense of well now how can we trust anything? How can we believe anything is true? And this led to the, the whole idea that we need to deconstruct everything so yeah, I I think the left has has shifted. It's it's worse in America because they had the Red Scare. They didn't have a consistently economic um, left that could exist openly. We've had Marxists and socialists parties. Um, they've dwindled, but they still exist, um, and they have kept an economic left alive. So I myself would consider myself a liberal leftist with 
sympathies with Marxist criticisms of capitalism with a realistic idea of acceptance that actually Marxism doesn't work. So we have this thing on the left where we've got an economic left, um, we've got a radical left, we've got a liberal left, we've got a social justice left. We have people who sort of pick and choose from various parts of them. But I, I think it's absolutely true to say that the working class has got largely pushed out of this. Uh, some recent studies I was looking at in attitudes towards the police, for example, found that working class um, black Brits are more likely to feel positively towards the police. The biggest indication of um, negative attitudes towards the police was whether or not one with had gone to university. Now, so there's a big, big class issue um, going on here and the, this is why the Marxists accuse the social justice scholars and activists of essentially having stolen the left from the working class, taken it into the ivory tower and they call it a, a sort of bourgeois um, hypocrisy really where you end up with arguments about whether black CEOs are getting paid the same as white CEOs and, and nobody is caring at all about the... Um, the, the working classes and the divisions between the working classes that can be made by trying to subdivide people by by race particularly gender it's the feminism is actually waning now we're, we're seeing less of the gender wars that were so dominant only about five years ago but much more of the um, fights over the between the gender critical feminists and the trans activists this is totally unintelligible to anyone outside tertiary education, isn't it? I, I think it, I, yes. I, this is what I find and this is what worries me so much because I see people who want to argue with it and they're, they're saying, but this is contradictory, but this is inconsistent, but this is unjust. And I'm trying to explain how the thinking works, and it's really counterintuitive. So, I mean, cynical theories is an attempt to um, help people get their heads around it because it took me several years of reading postmodernists and then applied postmodernists and then the recent um, uh, sort of flood of of popular and, and accessible books on race and gender to have to see these patterns and I want people to understand them and I want them to feel confident to push back at them saying this is unethical this is irrational and it's unethical you do not have a monopoly on racial sexual and LGBT equality you have a method and it's crap <laughs> but if you're going to be cancelled in the cancelled culture mm. that has arisen out of this it takes a lot of guts to dissent doesn't it it does. That's what we're aim we're trying to address most at the moment. I fortunately am uncancellable because I'm self-employed, and um, I um, yeah I can just log out of um, social media if I I want to avoid the abuse. But this isn't the case for a lot of people. We get letters from people who are saying I want to push back at this, but I need to keep my job. I have a family. Um, and I, I find often that men um, express more concerns for their job. Women um, express more concerns about being 
believed to be racist or sexist. So I think there's a, a, a gender difference there, although both are concerned about both. So what we are doing at the moment, and it has come together organically really quite quickly, um, is connecting people with each other. Because quite often someone will come to me and say, I work for this company and I think I'm the only person who sees a problem. And I can say, actually, no. Would you like me to introduce you to a couple of others? And by connecting people in this way, uh, people in the same professions, people in the same organisations, and getting them to build their own sort of um, counter-organisations. We, we have them in psychology, social work, teaching um, now. Psy so psychologists are particularly concerned. Um, there's concerns in medical fields. People getting together to embolden each other to push back at it. And I, I'm also we, we have templates we can sort of help them to argue with these ideas as safely as possible. If you come from a place of knowledge and a place of principles, it's quite difficult um, for them to, to misrepresent what you're saying. You need to show that you understand what you're criticising and that you're not opposing racial or gender equality. It also helps a lot if while saying um, this, you're not a white man. Yes. It's quite something when you have to, to almost develop subversive strategies to undermine something that is so nonsensical. Uh, we are, it, it's, you know, it, we're not blind to the fact that we are deconstructing the deconstructionists. We are um, trying to subvert the systems of, of power that <laughs> that we see existing. And essentially what we're trying to do is, is form activist groups to speak truth to power. And, you know, th this is, um, th I, I find this, this amusing because we're still hearing from the social justice scholars and activists that they are the radical minority who are pushing back against the the orthodoxy which is apparently the some the the attitudes of the the least enlightened people in the 1950s um when in fact they are the orthodoxy they are a very dominant discourse in society and and they need deconstructing well, you're welcome to your work, and I wish you luck with it. Uh, I'm glad I had to have nothing to do with critical theory. But thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. It was good talking to you. Well, there you are. Helen Pluckrose, fighting the good fight against the excesses of critical theory. Apologies to those of you who are expecting David Omond, who I promise is coming very soon, probably just lurking behind a lamppost somewhere. In the meantime, next week, we've got another interview very much in keeping with the times. Dr Rachel Clark is a former media type turned doctor specialising in palliative care. She spent the last year caring for some of the sickest patients of the pandemic, and she has plenty to say about it. Do join us for that, and in the meantime, keep washing your hands. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.